morning. Today's scripture reading is taken from Romans 15, verses 14 to 18, and Romans 16, verses 25 to 27, and you can find this on page 922. Paul, the minister to the Gentiles. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace that God gave to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all of the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. morning, everyone. Welcome to Spring Garden this morning, and happy Thanksgiving weekend to you all. Um, I hope this weekend you'll all be able to take some time to reflect on the goodness of God and to give thanks uh, this weekend. For those of you who are new to Canada, our Thanksgiving here in many ways has become what most countries uh, would just would call some form of harvest festival. Thank, giving thanks for the land and for the food that comes f- from it. Now, as we know, sadly, historically in Canada, our Thanksgiving has roots uh, in giving thanks for the land um, that was stolen by colonizers from the indigenous people who were here long before. Uh, uh, as these are things we reflected on last week uh, as part of Truth and Reconciliation Day. And I'm, but I'm, I am proud to be in Canada at this time is that more and more we are seeking as Canadians to locate our gratitude in ways that do honor and remember Canada's indigenous people while giving thanks. So for us as Christians, that means giving thanks to God with gratitude in our hearts for the harvest, but also for everything that we have to be thankful for. And one thing I am thankful for this weekend is that today is the end of our series on Romans. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm just, that was a joke, by the way, that was a joke. I am actually uh, uh, thankful. Uh, I've really enjoyed this uh, journey through the book of Romans. What I really more mean to say is I'm thankful for this last chapter and a half of letter. And I'm thankful that I I have the opportunity to speak on it. What the author Paul has to say here uh, as he concludes his masterpiece, I think, is is just wonderful. Um, Let's pray as we begin. God, we are thankful for your scriptures, for the way your Holy Spirit 
continually brings them to life in our midst. The way your Holy Spirit leads us deeper into you through Jesus. I ask God that today your spirit will speak in ways far deeper than what I as an earthen vessel can speak. I pray this in your name. Amen. So the section of Romans that we are looking at today goes all the way from chapter 15, verse 14, all the way to the end of the letter, chapter 16, verse 27. Now, to give you a bit of a lay of the land for how I think uh, it's helpful to look at this section of Romans, uh, the sections that Karen read for us, function as bookends. One is at the beginning of the section and one is at the end. For those of you unfamiliar with the expression, bookends, if you have a series of books on a shelf, the bookends are the things that you would put on the end to hold the books together. It holds them together, it keeps them from falling over and separating. So the bookends, I think, the things that hold together chapters, half of, last half of 15 and 16, that hold some of the elements together is the same, actually, as what I think are the bookends of the entire letter. Here in the final verses, Paul is using some of the same ideas that he used all the way back at the beginning of chapter 1, when he was introducing his purpose of the letter. I just, and I want to show you some comparisons. In chapter 1, the first words that Paul writes are these. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And then we flip to the end. At 1625, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ. So he begins and ends by talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, we've mentioned this a number of times throughout the series, um, but I'm not assuming that everyone was here, so I'm going to say it again. The letter of Romans uses a lot of language that pushes against the Roman Empire. And gospel is actually one of those words. Caesar, who was the Roman emperor, he had his own gospel. The empire had a gospel, and that's the way they spoke of it, the gospel of Caesar. And so Paul actually uses the same word of gospel to not only set Jesus apart from the good news, the gospel of Caesar, but to set it above the emperor, to set it above the Roman empire, that his gospel is greater and above all other gospels. Again, to compare, chapters 1, verses 2 to 4, Paul writes, The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was the descendant of David, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel he promised beforehand by his prophets. And then here, 16, at the very end, 25 to 26, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden from long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God. So again, he's establishing beginning and the end that Jesus was prophesied in the scriptures, in the old, what we consider the Old Testament, we call the Old Testament, 
Paul begins and ends by centering the good news of Jesus as being promised by the Jewish prophets of old. A promise that was a mystery that was made known only when Jesus came through his resurrection from the dead. And then again, Paul continues to mirror what he said at the beginning here at the end. In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes, Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And then again, 16, verse 26, so that all Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Christ, Jesus Christ. Amen. That all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. Paul begins and ends by saying that this gospel, and particularly Paul is saying his role in proclaiming this gospel, is that the Gentiles will come to the obedience that comes by faith. He uses this exact same phrase, to start and to finish. And that tells us that this is important to Paul. That the Gentiles coming to this faithful obedience is for the sake of God's name. It is for God's glory. For his namesake is another way of saying that God's reputation is on the line. God's reputation is, is, depends on the Gentiles being invited and coming into faithful obedience. And so something that is important for us to remember, and this be news for some of you, is what the word Gentile is referring to. The word Gentile in the original language, our New Testament, is in Greek. The word Gentile in the original language is ethnos. That's where we get our English word for ethnicity. The Jews divided the world up into two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews and everyone else. But the word ethnos is, actually means everyone. So it's important to keep us in mind because sometimes when we read Paul's writings in English, we think of Gentiles as this particular group of people, right? It's, there's Christians, there's Jews, there's Gentiles. We think of this like separate group of people. But really, it is not a particular group of people, but it is everyone. It is all ethnicities except for the Jews. So part of what Paul is doing all through the book of Romans is saying that this gospel of Jesus, for the sake of God's name, is to make all nations God's peoples. Instead of just one nation, all nations become God's people. If you're interested in exploring that more, we have an entire summer <laughs> worth of worship where we've, we've explored that theme. Now, another important wording for us to see here is in both of these verses in chapter 1 and chapter 16. In our pew Bibles, uh, that's the, we use the New International Version which we off, people often just say NIV. They translate the original Greek as the obedience that comes by faith. However, in that original language, it's actually just two words side by side. It's just obedience, faith. So those words in the middle aren't actually there. So that was the interpreters trying to figure out, okay, what does Paul mean by these two words side by side? And so they decided that what Paul is saying is that it's obedience that comes by. They've added that. Now, I was in, in order to show why the NIV uses longer 
obedience that comes by faith. I was tempted to get into the history of Protestants' uncomfortability with using the word obedience in relation to faith. You know, if salvation is by faith alone, then there is a felt need to keep any talk of um, our part being separate as possible and to emphasize that faith comes first and then obedience. That's something that's in the Protestant tradition, but I'm not going to go throughout the whole history. If you're interested in talking about that, I'm, I'm happy to. But I'll simply say that a number of our English translations and our newer translations will choose to translate it as the obedience of faith. Well, Paul does talk about how righteousness is not given because of what we do, but is because of faith. Because of our faith in Jesus, yes, but as we saw in chapter 3, we are righteous and justified because of the faith of Jesus. So this is the part that is not our work. The faith is of, it's the faith of Jesus. That is not our work that gets us righteousness and justification. We don't get those things by what we do. And while Paul says that, Paul actually didn't see the need to separate obedience from faith. But he puts them together side by side, both at the beginning of the letter and at the end of the letter. Faith is trust. When you have faith in something or someone, you trust them. I know this, is, this analogy is old and worn, but you have faith in the pew because you're sitting in it, right? If you didn't have faith, if you didn't have trust that it was going to hold you up, you wouldn't actually be sitting there, right? So faith is when we have faith in something, we're putting trust in it, that it will be true, that it is trustworthy, reliable, dependable. Faith, obviously, in this regard is in God, which is much more reliable than the pews. And obedience is to obey. It is to be submissive to one who has authority over you. It is to do what they ask. It is knowing that they are above you, that you are putting yourself under them. And so obedience, faith, is if we trust God, we will submit to God. But I also think it works that sometimes it is through our submitting to God and placing ourselves under God that our faith and our trust can grow. It doesn't secure our salvation. And the faith itself is a gift from God and the faithfulness of Jesus. But obedience and faith for Paul are hand in hand. Adding some more complexity to this. I love this complexity stuff, so hopefully uh, you just have to bear with me if you don't. But just as the word gospel was a word of the empire used to reference the message of the empire, and then Paul shows that Jesus is gospel above the gospel of the empire. In the same way, another thing that G uh, Paul just says Caesar was to be called Lord, and G Caesar was to be called Son of God. So Paul says that Jesus is the true Lord and the true Son of God. He's using empire language to raise Jesus above the emperor. The word obedience was also a word of the empire. We saw this back in chapter 1, that the Roman Empire was one where everything depended on social hierarchies. So the slave is indebted to their master. And so the slave had to obey their master. Then the master was indebted to and expected to be obedient to those who were above them. 
And then those who were above them had to be obedient to those above them and on and on and up through the social and political hierarchy until you get to the top of the hierarchy, which was the emperor. And so everyone had to be obedient to the emperor. Everyone was to be submissively obedient. And the very purpose of the Roman war machine was to spread out and to take over other nations. Roman peace was made by demanding obedience of all nations, demanding the obedience of all Gentiles. This is how Rome and the empire and the emperor grew in their power. And here Paul is using the same language, except now instead of the empire that is spreading out and the empire that is calling for the obedience of all Gentiles, now Jesus through Paul, is calling for the obedience of all Gentiles. But unlike the empire, which uses force and violence and fear, social hierarchies demanding obedience of the nations for the glory of the emperor, the obedience of faith that Paul is calling all nations to comes through the faith, the peace, the righteousness, unity and holiness of the Holy Spirit, in the name and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, all for the glory, not of a human, power-hungry emperor, but to the glory of God. This gospel, this obedience of the nations is so much greater than the one that the empire was demanding. He says this at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 5, and then at the end in chapter 16, 26, but he also says something very similar in 1518, the beginning of this section. He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. And just in case you miss it, that word, the obey God, the original language, again, is the exact same word as obedience, the other ones. So perhaps closer to the original is to say that it's to lead the Gentiles to obedience. It's the same phrase, the same idea as earlier. Leading the Gentiles to obedience by what Paul has said and done. Throughout the book, we have seen how Paul's message is that through the faithfulness of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead, that God is expanding who are the people of God, welcoming all nations into the family of God. Paul's message has been in God's calling the Gentiles, all nations to the obedience of faith, calling people that the Jews didn't, saw as outsiders and the Jews didn't want to be brought in, all nations to be to the obedience of faith. God, in Paul's gospel, is breaking down all of the human and religious divisions between nations, ethnicities, social orders, genders, to make one family, one home in Christ Jesus. And this message was not welcomed by everyone. Paul's inclusion of the Gentiles, Paul's teaching that Jewish customs like circumcision and food laws were no longer necessary in the community of believers, Many people did not welcome this inclusivity of God's family being opened up like this. And so these were people who opposed the message and opposed Paul because of it. 
And so they were questioning Paul's authority. So this helps us to make sense of, as we go into the end of chapter 15 and into 16. In chapter 15 to the end of chapter 15, um, starting in bar, uh, bar. You can tell I'm a musician. Starting at bar 17. Starting at verse 17. Paul defends himself. He defends himself a lot here. It comes across as a little braggy. But that's Paul, right? <laughs> he talks about the grace that God gave him. That God gave him priestly duties. He talks about the amazing things that happened among the Gentiles through what he said. If it wasn't for him, these amazing things wouldn't have happened. In verse 19, he says he's, he has fully proclaimed the gospel, which along with verse 23, saying there's no more place for him to even work in that region, he's essentially saying that there's nowhere in all of the Mediterranean left to preach because he covered all of it, right? So maybe a bit extreme, but he's trying to point out, like, I, I listen to me, this message is not from me, it's from God. In verse 21, he essentially says the Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, was speaking about him in Isaiah 52. If you can't get more authority than being the answer to the prophets. In other words, Paul's message is credible. You don't need to question whether the gospel he proclaims is from God. And Paul's trying to paint this. To us, it can seem like he's braggy. Um, but we're, as we move on, we're going to see that this isn't bragging um, at least not in the way that we think of it. And then we continue on in 15, verses 23 to 33. Oh, did I get that right? Yes, 23 to 33. Paul talks about his desire to go to Rome to visit the hearers of his letter, talking about his travel plans so that they know that he does desire to see them. And part of these travel plans is that Paul is collecting an offering. He's collecting money from Gentile churches to help those in Jerusalem who are poor. So it is actually very likely that tied into this Jewish opposition to his gospel, that his desire behind the offering is actually to kind of gain favor among the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. The ones who aren't sure about welcoming Gentile believers. He's bringing money from the Gentiles who are, the Gentiles are wanting to care for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And Paul says, as the Gentile believers shared and received the Jews' spiritual blessings in Jesus, so the Gentiles share their material blessing with the Jews. As Isaiah 60 says, the riches of the nations will come to Jerusalem. After this, Paul has a long list of personal greetings, which quite frankly, I think these personal greetings deserve a whole morning, just these greetings. Um, I got an amen there. Yeah, I, I actually thought about leaving the rest of it and just doing these greetings. And Karen would have loved that, reading through all these ancient names. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, yeah. Anyway. I'd love to talk to you. If you want to talk about that later, or just go look it up. But there's, there's so much going on in this. But to sum it up, as biblical scholars, Walsh and Kiesmat, they say, the inclusivity of Paul's gospel is seen in the expansive generosity of his greetings. Male and female, powerful and powerless, slave and free, elite and the lowest of the low, are all greeted and welcomed home in Jesus. 
Of the 26 names included, 23 are Gentile, and only three are Jewish, and nine are women. Not only are the people who used to be outside of the family of God are welcomed home, we also see that they are given leadership and authority. In 16 verse 1, Paul speaks about a woman named Phoebe, one that he calls our sister, a deacon of the church. Chances are that Phoebe was the one who actually carried Paul's letter to Rome. She was the harbinger of the book of Romans. And it was probably, she was probably even the one who read it aloud to all the churches as she went to different home churches within Rome. Yes, a woman who was a leader in the church in the first century, a female leader that Paul affirms. Now, some people will debate it, that deacon was a leadership position. But the tradition of Phoebe being a leader goes back at least as far as the second century, where she was understood to be accepted as a leader. Church Father Origen wrote of her in the early third century, saying this passage teaches us there were women ordained in the church's ministry by the apostles' authority. Not only that, they ought to be ordained into the ministry because they helped in many ways and by their good services deserved the praise even of the apostle. If that's not a call for women in ministry, third century, and we're still fighting about it. Anyway, that's the whole side thing. A similar thing can be said actually in verse 7, where people, Paul calls Andronicus and Junia, and again, there's been debate, but it's become, as, as scholarship and research becomes be, better and better, it's become very clear that Junia, people have tried to make her a man, but it's a woman. Oh, I'm so tempted to talk about traditions that want to make her a man because they can't handle a woman. But anyway, I'm not going to go there. Paul calls this woman outstanding among the apostles. Paul affirms her not only as a teacher, a bearer of authority, but as an outstanding teacher and bearer of authority. He puts her alongside of himself as an apostle. Even as something as simple as a list of names, Paul's proclaiming a gospel of Jesus that welcomes all, that pushes against societal, that pushes against religious norms of the day, and I would say the religious norms of today as well, to expand the obedience of faith into those who were previously rejected and on the outside. And there's, anyway, there's so many more names than those. I'm only going to take the time to point those ones out. So let's continue on, 16, verses 17 to 20. There's this section that kind of seems out of place if you're reading it all as one. Many scholars do think Paul didn't actually write this and that it was added in later, but it's still part of our Bibles, I think. So even, even if that's true, I think we still take it um, as it is given to us. But even as odd as this placement seems, even with the chance that maybe it wasn't Paul, it actually is in line with what Paul has already said earlier in the book about people trying to convince others they need to go back into the works of the law. People who are trying to put obstacles in your way, he says, don't be swayed by them. Don't be naive. Don't be sucked in. God will be justified in the end. 
This is very in line with the rest of Paul in Romans. And then finally, after some more greetings, but this time from Paul's companions, the letter comes to a conclusion of Paul giving glory to God. Now to the one who is able to establish you. Now to the one who is able. As we seek to understand and to live out Paul's gospel in Romans, a gospel of making a new family that includes people of all natures, of all cultures, all levels of society, coming together, equally welcome at the table to be a unified family. A gospel of freedom in the spirit where we are slaves to Christ rather than slaves to the works of the law or to the tyrants of the empire. A gospel that calls all nations to the obedience of faith. As we seek to understand these things from beginning to end and everything in between, we must not lose sight of the reality that it is God who is able. It is God who is able to do these things and more. And it is only through the faithfulness of Jesus, by the work of the Holy Spirit, that God can make a new family out of those who were once divided. It's all, it's all on God. And as important as Paul sees himself as being, he knows that it is not because of, he knows that it is only because of Christ accomplishing it, that his ministry has borne fruit. We see allusions to this when Paul refers to himself as a slave and he puts himself on the bottom of the social hierarchy. In 1518, when Paul says he will not speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Paul knows it is Christ who accomplishes it. And he invites all of us, all nations, all people, all individuals into the obedience of faith. Now, I've been thinking um, a lot about harvest, giving thanks for the harvest. Seems like a good time of year for it, but I think about this a lot. We give thanks to God for the food that grows, that is placed at our tables to enjoy and to be nourished, right? We give thanks. We did this morning, right? We said thanks to God for zucchinis and beets and chard and, and flowers, right? But the reality is, is we wouldn't have any of the harvest, well, at least not enough for everyone to survive, if it wasn't for the obedience of farmers and gardeners, right? If it wasn't for the obedience of farmers and workers who toil the land, if it wasn't for the truck drivers who transport the crop from the farms, if it wasn't for the hands that prepare and serve the food, or if it wasn't for grocery store workers, Right? I want you to say to a gardener who has labored in a garden that it, all, it only is God, right? Because they have labored and toiled. I can't even do it because my back can't even take it. It is hard work. Everything here has come from the garden because many people were faithful in their labor. God is the one who ultimately makes things grow. A farmer can't force things to grow by mere willpower. As we said, you know, the rain and, the, and nutrients, even just the science of how things grow are God's beautiful creative work. But no matter how much we do, we cannot force things to grow. It is God who does it. And so we give thanks to God. But farmers and gardeners are called to be obedient in how they labor. And I think our lives are like that. 
Our faith is like that. God alone is the one who's able to establish us, to bring salvation, to create unity. We have freedom and peace in that. But at the same time, we are called to an obedience of faith. We are called to have trust in God's faithful work and to be obedient to God's call to live out that faith. Laboring in the fields, on our knees in the dirt and the fields and the gardens of our lives as a response of thanksgiving. Without God, nothing grows. But God invites us to be obedient. And it is by our obedience that God can grow even larger and more nutritious fruit and vegetables, of course. Midst in the, unity in the midst of diversity is not an easy thing. Faithfulness in the midst of hardship, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of a culture that relentlessly tells us to be self-seeking, these are not easy things. They require laboring. They require perseverance and effort on our part. But it is laboring with the trust that God is in the midst of it, even when it doesn't seem like it. We must never lose sight of the fact that it is not our obedience of faith that accomplishes these things. That it is the faithfulness of Christ through whom these things are possible. And so we always give thanks to God. At the same time, we are called to an obedience of faith while it is God who is able to establish the work of our hands. And so it is God alone who deserves the glory. So let us give thanks to God while we live out our obedience, while we live out our trust, our faith in one who is trustworthy and deserves our obedience. Let us give thanks to God. Let us give glory and worship to God. Let us offer our faithful obedience as a gift of thanksgiving. Now to the one who is able, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.